Welcome to the New Books Network. For the past two decades, Brad Warner's voice has been a constant in the North American Zen Buddhist scene. With nine books starting at 2003's Hardcore Zen up to 2022's The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being, Warner has contributed a lot to my own personal understanding of Zen practice and also to the understandings of my students in my classes. In his latest book, The Other Side of Nothing from New World Library, Warner untangles the concept of non-duality in clear language while also digging deep into everything from his own years of moving back and forth between Ohio and Kenya to simply walking his dog around the block. The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being is out now from New World Library. Brad Warner is a Soto Zen priest, filmmaker, and author, and he is the president of the Dogen Sangha International. You can find Brad online at his website, hardcorezen.info. Please enjoy my conversation with Brad Warner. Brad Warner, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Brad, this is your third time chatting with me um, over the years. And just to kind of remind listeners uh, who may not know you or your work a little bit, I'm wondering if you can just give a, a quick little intro to kind of who you are and what you do. Oh my gosh, uh, the quick intro. Yeah. I, yeah, I write books about Zen Buddhism. And I first got into Zen when I was late uh, in my late teens, and the bass player for a hardcore punk band called Zero Defects. And I felt that Zen at the time, my my assessment of it was it was the most punk rock thing I'd ever come across because awesome. the, the punk scene I was part of was that uh, it was the kind of DC influenced by what was going on in Washington DC, which was the straight edge thing, which was a an idea of punks who didn't drink, didn't do drugs, didn't have meaningless sex, and had all these kind of ethical ideas, and were mm-hmm. trying to sort of change the world for the better. You know, as opposed to the, you know, punks who get drunk and roll around on the floors, although we had a few of those people too. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and I and I thought Zen was a, a way to take all of that to the, the furthest uh, point it made sense to take it. And so I started doing Zazen and practicing. Zazen is a meditation uh, practice. Eventually I moved to Japan and I got a job working for a company called Tsuburaya Productions who make... A TV show called Ultraman, which uh, if they're lucky, it'll something people will be hearing about soon because they're making a big push to make it uh, in America. Uh, again, this is like mm. the fourth time they've tried to make it big in America, but we'll see. Gotcha. But it was created by the guy who created Godzilla. So it's basically, um, he was the forerunner of Power Rangers. Ultraman came out, God, almost 10 years before the the show that became the Japanese show that was uh, transformed into Power Rangers later. So it's quite similar to to Power Rangers, if you want to know what kind of a a program we made. And at that time, I was also a student of this guy named Gudo Wafunishijima Roshi, who's a a Zen teacher who translated a a giant book called Shobo Genzo, which is a a classical, uh, one of the most famous classical pieces of of Zen literature. And it's, it's a huge huge body of work and uh, he ordained me as a well he made me his dharma heir so Mm -hmm. that's uh, that means i'm supposedly his uh, his equal in the you know i mean you can the 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 tradition of the dharma heir supposedly goes back to the buddha when the buddha was uh, old he decided to uh, make mahakashapa his dharma heir and mahakashapa was supposedly then the equal to buddha so supposedly I am the equal to the Buddha. I don't believe that at all. But ceremonially speaking, that's what that's what my teacher did for me. So that that uh, is the basis on, under which I wrote my first book, Hardcore Zen, which was successful enough that I've written uh, nine more Zen yeah. books or eight or nine. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Zen book, the latest, which is called The Other Side of Nothing. How's yeah. That? That's a version. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, you know, last time you were here was episode 139 of Classical Ideas Podcast. And we did that in November 2019. And, you know, we we ended that conversation and we were talking about music at the very end and the misfits came up. And I remember thinking, holy smokes, we should have spent more time on that. <laughs> and I'm wondering if before we get into the book, if you have been up to any musical projects the last couple of years. Um, you know, the world has changed a lot since November 2019. And I'm wondering yeah. if you've been, uh, you know, dabbling in music still since um, the last couple of years. Well, I, I do. I've, I've started, the, I do a YouTube channel, which is at, if you go to youtube.com slash hardcore zen, that's where you can find. Uh, and, and I do uh, three, at least, I try to do at least three videos a week. And I don't know when, a, a few months ago, I hit on the idea of doing my own musical introductions. And now the musical introductions have become more and more elaborate. So yeah. I, I spend uh, I spend actually a lot of time getting those together, uh, probably as much time as I do working on the videos themselves these days. So so I'm doing that. And I've gotten back into to playing, which I had kind of slacked off on. And it's it's really great for me. Uh, because I, I am enjoying it. And Zero Defects, that band I was in back in the 80s, is still formally together. We're hoping to do a gig in July, although right now we're kind of up in the air as to uh, how that's going to work out. But um, we, we get together and play usually about once a year. Awesome. Um, yeah. How have you been enjoying making your YouTube channel the last couple of years? You seem to love it. I've watched so many of your videos, and I'm just curious about the you know, the process of having that, that digital creation, as well as the writing, how are you enjoying making that YouTube channel? Well, it's, it's really great. And it's something that readers of my stuff urged me to do for a long time. I kept getting emails from people saying, you should do a YouTube channel. And I'd go, I don't want to do a YouTube channel. And then I think it was 2017 when I finally uh, just decided, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I I'd put up a handful of videos on YouTube before then, but I decided to see if, you know, what would happen if I did it on a regular basis with the idea that I would do it for a month or so. And then if it, if it wasn't panning out, I'd, I'd just quit. Um, and I, I really like it. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a whole different way of relating to the audience. Cause I, I can kind of interact with people I, I take questions and, and, you know, a lot of my videos are answers to questions that people send me uh, and just coming out there and talking is, is different. I found that a kind of funny thing happened when hardcore Zen was the only book and the only relation, the only thing anybody knew about me was that book because people would meet me after the book came out and go, oh, wow, you're completely different from that <laughs> book. And I'd, I'd be going, I don't feel like I'm completely different from that book. I think maybe the voice that people made up in their heads when they read my book was a different voice from the one I actually have. You know, they they imagined I was going to be this angry, shouting, yeah. I don't know, person, and I'm I'm not that way at all. So so this is a a whole different way people can actually see me, and and there's a different way you communicate when talking that, that's quite different from writing. And I realized this. I, I mean, I kind of knew this already, but one of the things I did with this book, The Other Side of Nothing, is and I and don't ask me which chapter because I can't remember now. But one of the chapters was I had made a YouTube video and I thought that's that was that came out pretty good. I YouTube has a transcript uh, function on it. it. Most people don't seem to even know about this, but it'll it'll generate a transcript of whatever you say. So I thought I would just generate a transcript of what I'd said in that YouTube video and and make that a chapter in my book. It's so good. And that's yeah, a great strategy. Well, it sounds like a great strategy, but what I ended up doing, I, I did so much rewriting on that that I decided I was never going to do that again. Oh, gotcha. Because I, I, I did, I did as much rewriting of that as I would have done if I'd just written it without, without working from the transcript. I, probably more, because the the mode of expression is so different, and and what sounded good on a YouTube video when presented as a transcript that you read just was terrible. 
you know, yeah. and it was the same material. So I eventually figured out how to say the same thing in a different way, in a way that that uh, made sense in writing. But it's a whole, it's a different, it's a different type of communication. And I yeah, think they're well, both valuable. Yeah. And you, you've dabbled in podcasting as well. Do you like the video element more than the audio only? Yeah, I do. I, I, I haven't figured out, I, I still have a podcast. And if you go to the hardcore Zen podcasts, there are, God, there's a lot of episodes up now. So if you haven't listened to it before, then there's plenty to listen to, but I haven't done a new episode for, for a while now. I think I did one about a month ago and so, yeah, it's, it's a different sort of a thing. And I, I don't, I don't, what I do doesn't lend itself to the sort of Joe Rogan thing where you have a guest on and talk to the guest about something, you know, I've got to just say, I've just got to do it myself. Yeah. So, um, so sometimes I, I don't know what to say. And what, what I've been doing with most of the podcast is I, I record the talks that I give to audiences and I've been editing those and putting those out as, as podcasts. And those work, I think, pretty well because I'm, I'm relating to an actual audience in front of me. Yeah. So that, that comes through, uh, when I'm just talking into a microphone to no one, you know, in my, in my uh, living room, it, it feels a little weird and I'm not sure exactly how to do it. And when I have the video, it, it, it somehow feels like there's somebody actually now that I'm thinking about it, what I, what I'm seeing when I make a video is I'm seeing myself on the screen, you know, cause that's, that's the way it works. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm relating to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That kind of reminds me of the uh, the dog walking chapter in the in the new book, because um, it's like, who is that guy? Um, I love that that you kind of can assess Thank your you. own like body language and you know and use that as sort of a way to make sure. Am I? Do I like look like I'm an engaging presence for the viewers of this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about other side of nothing. Uh, it's your ninth book by my by my count and you're eighth. probably right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's your eighth for the current publisher, New World Library, who I've been working with for a long time. And, you know, the world is so different compared to the last time you and I were on the phone yeah. here together. And I'm wondering how the idea and focus for this book took shape over time because the context of people's lives has been so strange the last few years that I'm just wondering what yeah. was going on uh, in your in your thought process as you were putting this book together. Well, one of the things I decided to do kind of early on in the writing was I wasn't going to reference any of of the stuff that happened in 2020 and 2021. Um, there, there was a, a version of the book where I had a couple of references to that in it, and I took them out because I just thought, eh, this isn't going to, you know, this is going to be one of those things that ages the book. And also, I think there are issues that transcend all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, the things things certainly did change. But I mean, the thing the thing I've learned by studying Buddhism, which is a twenty five hundred year old philosophy, is that a lot of things change, but there's some things that don't change. Mm -hmm. You know, and and if I can relate to Dogen's writings from eight hundred years ago, in which he does not reference any of the the many, many struggles and bizarre natural disasters and such like all the things that were going on in Japan 800 years ago, which are arguably even more, uh, more whatever, more, more of anything you can imagine than, than what we went through in the last couple of years. I mean, Japan was in a, a state in, in the, uh, in the 1200s and, um, and if you read Japanese history, you go, oh, my gosh, how, how did how did Dogen re refrain from mentioning any of this? But he was trying to talk about something that transcended all of that. And that and I thought that was a, a good thing to do. Um, you know, part of the impetus of writing the book, though, was a feeling that 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 there was a kind of a crisis of ethics, that people were looking for ethics, that 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 people wanted to find the right way to live an ethical life, but instead of finding the right way to live an ethical life, they were finding slogans and movements to join and, and things like that, where, where, you know, a powerful person comes along and tells you, this is the right thing to do. And everybody goes, yay, and follows that thing uh, without, without actually uh, looking at the fact that, 
the person who's telling you this probably doesn't have any idea, any better idea than you do about what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we've got to find that ourselves. And, and to me, the Buddhist ethical system was, was all about how to find the, the right way to live for yourself and by yourself. And that's, that was the major theme of the book, but I realized pretty quickly in writing it that the underpinning of the Buddhist ethical system is a, an understanding that the world is not at all what we think it is. Mm. And, and we ourselves are not at all what we think we are. And that there is this kind of transcendent unity of, of all things. And this is, you know, everybody says this, you hear millions of people out there going, everything is one, we're all together. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think it, it quickly descends into cliche. And I want to want to try in that book to get into what does that really mean? Gotcha. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? This is by my count as well. This is like 20 years now that you've been writing about Zen, Dogen, and practice. And, it's you know, pretty close. Yeah. 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 Hardcore Zen came out in 2003. But then again, I would have been writing it um, a few years, maybe as much as five years before then. I was probably working on it. So, yeah. yeah. What keeps this fresh for you? Like, how do you maintain such an immense interest in the topic to keep this commitment to writing going? Because you know, you, you come out with a, a new book with such regularity that like, I feel like this intense intrinsic motivation for you, like this is something that like, you have to do at this point. And I'm just wondering what keeps it so fresh for you. Yeah, it's sort of a compulsion, I suppose. I, I want to do it. And I, I feel like there's something to say. And the more, I mean, it sounds maybe pretentious, but I think as I get better at doing it, I find ways to kind of just channel something it you know it's it's not it's not like channeling Chan i mean in the business i'm in people are sort of uh, expecting things like channeling and whatnot so it's unfortunate choice of words i just made there um it's not literally channeling something in the sense of like disembodied spirits speaking through me or anything like that but i think there is there are things that there are ideas that want to be expressed that kind of transcend the people who express them. Mm -hmm. And what, what I try to do is, is get out of the way and let that happen. And, and I, I do a lot of lectures and things and I, I've found that that is possible with a, with the right sort of audience, uh, things can kind of come through uh, things that I don't expect to even say start getting said by me. And then I, I go look at it afterwards and go, really? <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. some of it surprises me uh, to hear, even as it's coming out of my mouth. So, so I feel like there's a kind of, there's something else out there operating. And I mean, musicians do this too. And a lot of people do this. I think even athletes do it to a certain extent. And people who, who do things in, in those public forums can sometimes learn to get out of the way and, and express something that, um, that's a sort of a collective uh, thing that wants to be told. Yeah. That, that the individual is, is not even... Um, part of <laughs> well you I know mean, the individual is obviously part of it but yeah and i feel kind of like that as well like i'm i'm compelled to continue recording conversations like this this is my fifth year of making this show and cool. it's a compulsion at this point just like you said and i kind of see my role in doing something like this as to get people on here that um you know write interesting books and then let them tell some stories and then just put it out into the world. And like, that's kind of the way that I see a show like this, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it really does. It's just, there's, yeah, it's something that, that, uh, that needs to, to happen. And it's weird to me because I, I look at my, I, I kind of came from a, well, my, my, my whole upbringing is kind of, is a, is something I wrote about, I've written about in a lot of books, but I think I wrote in more detail in this book than I have in any others. And it's sort of weird, but my family is, although we lived in Africa and I lived in Japan, my family is basically from Northeast Ohio or from Ohio in general. And 
there's a kind of mentality over there about what work is and work is going to the factory or to the office and making your contribution to society. So I, I've, I've always got this nagging feeling in me because of that going, well, I'm not doing real work because I'm just sitting in front of a, a microphone talking or sitting in front of a computer typing. You know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, that's not real work. <laughs> real right. work is the lugs on the tires or, you know, the, whatever you, whatever you do in Akron for your real work. Um, but I think that this kind of work really is necessary and it, it really is important in ways that I think a society as a whole sometimes doesn't know how to value either. They overvalue it in the sense of, you know, uh, movie stars and, and people making ridiculous amounts of money, you know, where it gets super overvalued and, and placed on these sort of special people who become kind of um, almost like modern day royalty or, or modern day um, gods almost, you know, or they, or they totally undervalue it. And, and you've got the, the struggling uh, poet who, who can't, uh, who can't even feed himself. You know? Yeah. So, but there's got to be a middle ground. I probably I've probably got the middle ground in in the sense that I you know make a modest income from doing this and, and yeah, have become terribly famous. But um, yeah, so yeah, I think it's necessary work. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned your childhood as well. And that is one of my favorite things about this book is that it contains long reflections on your life throughout living in Africa to Kenya and then back again to Ohio. Um, I mean, it's from Ohio to Kenya and then back to Ohio. And I'd love to know about the role of reflecting on your youth and how that came to be such a vivid part of the storytelling within this book. Well, it was... It, it sort of came about in a, in a funny way in that I uh, New World Library just uh, got the rights to a bunch of Alan Watts's books. And th this happened during the time that I was writing The Other Side of Nothing. So I asked Kim, uh, the, my publicist at New World Library, if she could get me some copies. And one of the books they sent me was uh, called In My Own Way, which is uh, Alan Watts's autobiography. Mm -hmm. And I actually didn't finish the book. <laughs> I started it, but I was really enchanted by these detailed descriptions that he gave of his of his childhood. And I thought, well, let me see if I can come up with something like that. And I don't know if I'll use it, but I just sat down and started to type it. And I and what came out was kind of, I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but I was just trying to to do what Alan Watts had did, did in his book uh, and and describe it as vividly as possible in, in, in terms where, where people could actually sort of picture um, what it was like. And I could picture what it was like myself. And I think it's interesting because I said the, the, the traditional thing, okay, let me say it this way. The traditional thing in Zen is to leave yourself out of it. And mm -hmm. like Dogen, my great literary Zen hero, it's difficult to construct, even though he wrote, you know, uh, I haven't even gone through all the stuff he wrote. He wrote, con he must have been writing constantly because he died when he was 53 or 54, depending on how you reckon his age at the time. Um, and yet he produced even more literature than than I have. And, and I'm older than he was when he died and started later uh, mm -hmm. in life than he did. Uh, so he, um, he, but he never says much about himself. You know, he, he has all this opportunity and you get little bits and pieces there, but but he's not interested in his personal story. And that's the, kind of the tradition in Zen is to not is to just not talk about that because it's not important. Uh, everybody's got their story. You know, it's like everybody's got a, a, a bum hole. <laughs> yeah, know, it's like you know, and then nobody cares about him except you, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, that's the that's the attitude in Zen, but I also thought, well, maybe it is valuable because it does this. These truths might be universal, but they're expressed by individuals, and even Dogen he can't help himself but to be who he was, uh, which he was raised as an aristocrat, you know, and, and left that life to become a Zen monk. But the aristocratic uh, upbringing he had comes through in his in his writing in a really um, you know in a big way 
that that he even there's even a little passage where he apologizes for it in one of his writings uh, you know how flowery his language is because he just can't help himself that's how he was raised to speak and that's how he wrote which is one of the reasons his writing can be so difficult it's very difficult to translate properly because it's just this this super flowery japanese uh, aristocratic language that that um that there really is no way to translate uh, because we don't have the, the, those words in, in English. Yeah. Um, literally, we don't have a lot of the words uh, that he used, don't have even equivalents in English. So, um, so yeah, it does come from somewhere. And I thought writing about where mine comes from might be useful to the audience because I think there is a, a tendency if you don't put that in for people to sort of imagine that it comes from, you know, some kind of a guru on high sitting on top of a mountain, you know, in, in robes and pontificating about the nature of, of the universe. And if you, you know, if you know, it comes from a guy who could ride his bike from one end of town to the other in 10 minutes, I put mm -hmm. that in in the book, um, you know, about the town that I grew up in when we weren't living in Africa, the Ohio town, you know, it, it, it's something that, that people can go, oh, okay, it comes from there. Maybe this stuff isn't, isn't inaccessible to me. Um, and I was glad to have uh, teachers. My first teacher uh, was a, I got an, another guy from Ohio and seeing that, that he had practiced this, this ancient Eastern uh, highfalutin philosophy and practice was kind of inspirational to me to go, okay, well, if, if Tim could do it, you know, I, I, I think there's hope for me to do this. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, you know, in the book, in the introduction, um, you also have some uh, some reflections on how the world is in what you call a sorry state, mm -hmm. um, which I, I think about constantly as a parent and as a person who, you know, fights uh, personal cynicism a little bit of the time in my own life. Yeah. And, you know, the world has changed a lot in the last 20 years since you've been writing. And being a publicly facing thinker, I feel like comes with uh, a series of challenges because people from the outside world tend to put what they see onto you, possibly, um, especially as our communication moves from being, you know, very face to face to much more digital and virtual and instantaneous. And I'm wondering if, uh, you, and you kind of allude to that in the book, and I'm wondering if there's been any sort of hard experiences about your writing career that have uh, exacerbated as the world has gotten far more digital and fast-paced? Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's weird, isn't it? You know, cause I, I was um, at least in my late twenties when the internet became real you know i yeah. mean there was sort of an internet i guess even before then but no not only nerds were using it i i had a nerdy friend who was on the internet in the in the 80s um so i was kind of exposed to it early on by seeing him but i thought oh it's just these these uh, really geeky guys who use this thing and then it becomes a thing for everybody and yeah it it did uh, it, it's it's changed a lot as far as hard experiences it's it's kind of I had to stop looking at uh, the Amazon reviews. At first, it was sort of exciting to look at uh, reviews on Amazon of my of my books because they're they're ordinary people uh, reviewing it rather than professionals who are paid to review it and probably got the book for free. It's interesting to see uh, things that are written by people who are who actually bought the book, you know, yeah. with their own money and, and who aren't professionals at, at reviewing. They, they kind of have a, a whole different perspective, but I did this book called Zen wrapped in karma dipped in chocolate a few years ago. And that book, that's where I stopped reading reviews because that book made certain people angry. And a lot of the reviews that came up on Amazon were just they weren't about the book. And mm. in, in fact, some of them were saying, were claiming that there were things in the book that weren't in there, mm -hmm. you know, and then getting angry about these things, 
you know, saying, Brad said this and that and this, and this is why I hate it. I'm going, well, I didn't say that. That's not yeah. in the book. You know, there's not, there's that, that isn't in the book. So you just made that up yourself. And I don't hmm. know if it's done out of malice or, or, or what, but, uh, but there was like three or four of those reviews. And I just was like, I'm not going to read these things anymore. And I haven't read a, a, an Amazon review of one of my books since then. Nice. Um, yes. And, you know, just, um, the, there's a, the, the fact that people can communicate um, so easily gives people, I, I remember um, I th- it was Thomas Dish, a science fiction author who I liked. And I went, you know, when internet first became a thing, I sent him an email. I sent an email to the address that was the email address that I got for Thomas Dish, expecting that it was I don't know, some manager or something was going to look at that. And I got a reply from Thomas Dish himself, mm. you know, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> Thomas Dish wrote to me. Yeah. Um, and and that was in the 90s sometime. And now now this this is just kind of an everyday occurrence. So so one of the things that happens to me is and it hasn't happened that often, but every once in a while, somebody gets confused, you know, and they they think they know me because they they see me on a, their video screen and they they've heard my voice and they've probably you know in their heads responded to it and then i get i get kind of weird interactions with with people who are i understand that too for sure who who have some kind of a bizarre notion that that i'm i'm their their friend and i don't i don't know anything about these people but they right. they come at me as if I know as much about them as they know about me, yeah. you know, and, yeah. uh, and it, it can get very strange. Yeah. Well, let's, um, you know, the, the other side of nothing has an interesting subtitle, mm. uh, including the word. And I was thinking like, Ooh, this is very Carl Sagan, uh, where you mentioned time and space. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me about what the importance of time and space is within this book in relation to the subtitle of the, of the, of the whole book itself. Well, one of the weirder aspects of Buddhist philosophy is that time and space are an illusion. And, and that's, that's a difficult one because we're, you know, we, we are so steeped in the idea that time and space are real things that to, to hear that that's an illusion is sort of like, what, what do you, what do you mean time and space are an illusion? The, the, the only thing I'm sure that exists is time and space, Yeah, you know, that you can come at it that way. So I wanted to, to talk about that. And I, I did a, a few chapters on Dogen's philosophies regarding time and space and, it's um it's quite interesting because it it points to an idea that this world is not what we think it is so we we kind of have an image of what we think reality is and it's based on our perceptions our sensory perceptions and whatever cognitive ability we have to put those sensory perceptions together mm-hmm. and human beings are really skilled at doing this and it's probably the reason we exist at all i think as as animals on the african savanna when we were just you know one of the many species of animals running around on the plains out there the only defense mechanism that that human beings really had against you know saber-toothed tigers and whatever else was uh, was uh, a danger to us was that we could outthink them, you know, apparently we could outrun them to a certain extent too. I just learned that recently. Um, but I think outthinking the other animals was, was the key to our survival. So we, we just put all our collective stuff into, into getting better and better at outthinking other animals. And now we're incredibly good at outthinking other animals and our, our senses are fairly keen, you know, now we can, now that we can measure it against other animals, we seem to have, you know, my, my dog can, can smell things that I can't smell and hear things that I can't hear, but, uh, but his vision isn't, isn't quite as good. And his tactile senses are certainly not as, as good, <laughs> you know, so we've got, 
we got a lot going for us in those areas. And we assume that the information we're getting from our senses and our ability to integrate that, uh, that sensory information are a true reflection of what's actually real. And the Buddhists have been for the last few thousand years questioning that and saying, well, no, we don't think so. And it's kind of an interesting thing to watch a contemporary science kind of catching up to that, you know, because we science was founded originally on the idea that that our perceptions were correct, you know, and then we're going and we're going to work it out. And and it's worked. You know, you and I are communicating on a on computers, you know, yeah. and, and people listening out there are probably listening on these little devices that are amazing pieces of technology based on human sensory perception and the ability to manipulate that. And so it's it's hard to disagree with it. So whereas I think the Buddhists are are right in not trying to challenge science. There's a um, there's a lot of religions who who go out there and say, well, no, we science is wrong. Our holy book is right. Buy download it on Kindle, you know, and go, just going, yeah. The fact that you can download your holy book on Kindle kind of says a lot about science, you know. It doesn't, you know, that that uh, that maybe maybe science does have something on the ball, you know, that maybe maybe there is something. So <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not that the Buddhists would challenge science and say that it's wrong. It's that they'll say, yes, it's right, but it works in a limited area and we are generally blind to how limited of an area science works in, mm. you know, because we, we sort of assume it, it's universal, it's everything, you know, but yeah. it, it isn't, it, it actually, it actually works in a limited area of, of sensory perception and, and sensory perception might not be right. And, and our cognitive ability might not be up to actually understanding reality. I and mean, that, yeah. that's the other thing in the Zen tradition is, a lot of the Zen tradition is sort of famous for making these statements that that on the surface don't make any sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's kind of one of the things Zen is known for. And one of the reasons for that is to just point out that, yeah, it's, everything is limited. You, you, the the most eloquent thing you can say about reality still doesn't get it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe just say something really simple and short that's also true. And let that just kind of hang in the air and see if it if it uh, sparks anything. I think that's what the Zen tradition is often trying to do with these, you know, weird cryptic statements and you know yeah. things like Zen master pounding his fist. <laughs> you know, the 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 famous sort of uh, cliche Zen guy coming up uh, to a lectern you know, hitting it with a, a stick and then leaving the stage, you know, and, and that being the lecture. Um, one of the reasons for that, it sounds irrational and weird, but if you actually get into the tradition, the reason for that sort of behavior is often to just say, here's reality, bang, mm, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, anything I can say about it isn't gonna, isn't gonna explain it any better than this noise I'm making by pounding my fist on the lectern, um, you know, part of part, that's, but now that you, when, once you explain a joke, you ruin it. So that's yeah. kind of, well, you know, and something else I was captivated by in this book is your descriptions of non-duality, because as a high school teacher myself, I'm always looking for ways to explain challenging concepts to mm. teenagers. And I think that your book does that really, really well. And I'm wondering like if you were standing in front of my students, my teenage students who are, who do not practice Zen, who are learning about it for the first time, how you might explain something like the importance of non-duality to them, which you do so well in the book. God, I I don't know how I would do that. I've actually had a couple occasions where I've been invited to, it hasn't, it's only happened maybe two, maybe three times where I've been invited to high schools to give. You should, you should do it. If you ever get the chance, you should do it. Yeah, I did it. uh, There's a video, actually, I put it up as part of my uh, YouTube channel a couple of years ago 
where I, uh, I'm, I'm talking to a vocational high school in, in Ohio. And what was interesting is, you know, it's a vocational school. So these kids aren't even planning to go to, they've already decided at 15 or 16 years old that they're not going to go to university. They're just going to, you know, learn a skill and get a job. So you'd kind of, I kind of expected, I didn't expect them to be stupid, but I didn't expect them to be sort of deep thinkers about things mm. and i was surprised at at, at uh they they were uh they was one of the best audiences i ever had and i got some of the the, the deepest questions um from these vocational high school students um you know and i thought well okay this is this is this is really good but it's difficult to explain and and i probably in a high school setting do exactly what i do for anybody else is what i try to do is i'll I'll prepare a few things to say that I hope will be a little challenging and maybe even a little confusing for the audience. And my, my strategy is to get the audience to ask me about those things. And, and I, I'll even st sometimes start off a lecture by telling people that this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and and uh, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always stimulate uh, questions. But when it does, that's when that's when it works. My, my teacher gave me, when you become ordained as a, as a Buddhist, uh, your teacher will give you what's called a Dharma name. And the Dharma name has, has some meaning. And it, and it always, or it's supposed to traditionally sound a little bit like your actual name. Mm. And the Dharma name I got was Odo, which doesn't really sound, it's, it sounds vaguely like Warner, if you really stretch your imagination. Um, but Odo means uh, the way of responding. So it's like, uh, so, so something my teacher must have picked, on, picked up on was that I do better when answering a question. Uh, so that's what I try to do. I try to get people to ask me a question. Because then if, if I get a question, then I can, I can focus in on the, that aspect of the thing that the person asking the question is is most interested in because I, I think there's there's probably as many ways to explain non-duality or anything really as there are people who want to know about it uh, and and you know part of what the zen literature does is it just says the same thing over and over that's that's kind of the big joke about dogen <laughs> is he, he wrote so much stuff but really he just says the same thing again and again and again. And, but he's trying to say it in different ways because that's actually significant. It's, it's important to try to say it in different ways, even though you're just saying the same damn thing over and over. So, so that's what I do. I just say the same thing over and over and, and hope that somebody picks up on it. I love it. Well, you know, one of my favorite chapters um, in the book is who walked my dog. Yeah. Um, because it struck with me because of the recurrence of the question, who am I in Zen practice, which is something that I love to talk about in my high school classes, like who am I, who am I over and over until the kids basically throw their hands up in exasperation and they're like, man, I don't know. Um, and yeah. it cracks me up every time because I do it to them every single year. And I loved how the simplicity uh, in the chapter of like walking the dog is not so simple at all. And yeah. I just thought this chapter was so fun. Um, like thoughts occur to us, even though we do not seek to conjure them in our minds. And it's almost like we're happening, uh, like these thoughts are happening against our will. And yeah. I'm wondering if you can, you can reflect on this chapter for me, because I, I just really love this one in particular. Well, I'm glad you liked that one, because that was the one I, I it, it comes late in the book, but I, I feel like it's the, the, the sort of center of the book, even though it's kind of placed off center in the sequence of the chapters in that it comes like almost pretty near the end, I think. But yeah, it was literally, I, I thought of that because I, as I was writing, we'd just gotten this, this dog, Ziggy, who, who's still with us. And I, had to walk him. I, I, I was, that was my main break from, from writing. I would write the book and then walk the dog and then write some more book and then walk the dog again. You know, that's, that was my, my life for months working on this book. And, and it struck me that this was an interesting uh, way to think about it. Like who is walking the dog? You know, we, we make so many assumptions. I've made so many assumptions about who I am. You know, I, I had assumed for years that I created 
my own thoughts. Mm. But once I got into Zen practice and started looking at it, I realized I don't, I don't create these. I mean, to, there's a certain, to a certain extent, I can seem to make them flow in a, in a certain direction sometimes, but most of the time it just kind of, they just kind of happen. And one of the weird things that, that happened to me in my Zen practice, it was one of the things you do is you stop relating so much to your own thoughts. If you do this practice long enough. And once you do that, I think for most of us, the, the thoughts kind of get very wild for a time and, and you start becoming aware, at least I started becoming aware of thoughts that did, didn't fit me at all. They, right. they weren't, they didn't seem to come out of my personality. They just seemed to come out of nowhere. And like, what the hell was that? You know? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and going, well, if that can kind of come up in my head unbidden, well, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who's in control here. Right. You know, you know, I've got, I've got a certain ability to it, but, but it's, it's very limited. And, and just asking like, who walked my dog? Did my body walk my dog? Did my mind, did my past walk my dog? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 there's all these kind of uh, questions that arose when, when thinking about that. And I was actually, doing what it is written in the chapter i was actually walking the dog and thinking oh okay well what is who's who's doing this now you know what's, <laughs> yeah. what and it's just, it's such a simple activity you know i just um take him around the block on his leash and, and he pees and poops <laughs> yeah you know, and that's um but it's uh i mean that's what zen is all about it's about looking at the most simple activities that's why our meditation system is so non-systematic it's basically just sitting still i mean that's what shikantaza is the technical term for it but it's a style of, of meditation in which you just try to get into just sitting like i'm just gonna sit and that's a i include myself in this when i say that's a struggle um, if you if you actually try to just sit without doing anything else you know all you're trying to do is hold this posture and stay still um and you're not trying to use that as a as a method to have an experience or to become a better person or to try to, to do anything. You're just trying to sit still for the pure activity of sitting still. And I do it every day. And every time I sit down and do it, it's a struggle to do it. You know, because mm -hmm. uh, it's it's like it's like those kind of things uh, you you read about in. Um, like different Asian systems of, of calligraphy, like the, the traditional way some calligraphy teachers do this is the, the character for one in, in Chinese characters, which the Japanese also use is just a, a, a horizontal line. That's the care, you know, that that's how you write the number one is I mean, we write it as a vertical line. They write it as a horizontal line. It's basically the same, the same thing. Yeah. But, um, they'll have you do that. Some calligraphy teachers will have uh, students do that for years, just write the number one, you know, mm -hmm. over and over and over until they can get into the purity of just going, whoop, you know, and then they're allowed to write the more complicated characters. Yeah. Whereas, whereas we think, Oh, you know, that's, that's a waste of time. I, maybe this is the, a relation to the punk rock thing too, because uh, you know, you're playing uncomplicated music, but trying to do it with fierce dedication. Um, which, you know, I, I have respect, I have tremendous respect for people who can play complicated music. One of my favorite uh, bands in the world is King Crimson, and they're, they're known for their, you know, incredibly, ridiculously complicated uh, stuff, uh, sometimes that rivals even, you know, classical music and jazz for, for complexity. And I love that stuff, but, you know, you, you also, there's a, there's a, a way of doing something that's only got three chords and you try to play them exactly right, that, that can be a challenge too. Uh, and it's, it's, that's more of the Zen type of challenge is, is to, uh, is to try to, to play that, that, those three chords, but, but do nothing else, you know? Yeah. Well, Brad, I, I loved earlier that you said that you feel like you're, you're still getting better at what it is that you do, because, you know, I've been reading your books for a long time and this one is 
really enjoyable and I have absolutely loved hearing about it in the process of it. And I'm wondering if you have any like updates on your teaching or speaking plans or what's next for you writing wise. It's hard to say what's next for me writing wise. I haven't gotten started on a, on a follow-up to this book yet, but that's kind of normal for me. I usually spend a few months not deliberately not writing another book. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Europe. I've gone to Europe every year with one notable exception that everybody knows uh, since 2009. I, I went last year too, and I'm going in September and I'll be speaking in Germany, England, Finland, uh, possibly the Netherlands, France, um, so that's really interesting to me to do. And like I said, I've done it every year, uh, because my first book got published, the first language it was translated to was Finnish and they invited me some people and set up a tour for me of Finland. And I thought, well, if I'm going to Finland, I can go to some of these other, uh, places in, in Europe too. And I started uh, doing it as a regular thing. So that's, that's always interesting. And, and the YouTube channel, which you've mentioned before, that's an ongoing uh, thing that I, I really enjoy doing. Uh, so I actually look forward to making my YouTube videos every day. And, and I typically don't do them on Mondays and Fridays and, and I kind of miss it. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. going, uh, But I also feel like uh, if there's too much, it's, it's no good either. So, um, so that's why I take two days off a, a week. Um, but, uh, but so I'm going to keep doing that and, uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes from there. I just moved, I moved out of Los Angeles where I've been living for, God, I don't know, almost 10 years really. Uh, and now I'm in, in a smaller city in California. And I, one of my things is I, I want to see if a, a, a Zen group would even work here. Um, because it's totally different from, from Los Angeles, you know? Uh, so, uh, I haven't started yet, but we'll see where that goes. Nice. Where would you like to draw listeners' attention if uh, you want to, you know, send them to check out your work? Well, the the YouTube channel, which I keep mentioning, is youtube.com slash hardcore zen. Or if you look up Brad Warner or Hardcore Zen, you'll find me pretty easily if you forget, you know, how to, to find it. Uh, that I update three times a week. And there's a blog, uh, which I haven't updated as much, uh, which I used to do several days a week, but I haven't done it that often lately, but that's hardcorezen.info. And that's, I, I also have links there to everything else that I do, uh, to uh, to the books, to, to um, my live appearances, to, to the YouTube channel, all that stuff is linked through hardcorezen.info. Excellent. Well, Brad Warner, author of The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being, as well as many other books like, um, you know, Hardcore Zen, um, Don't Be a Jerk, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. It came from beyond Zen. There's there's so many and they're wonderful. So I encourage anybody out there to, to check all of those out. And uh, Brad, thank you so much for coming back. And I look forward to having you back on for your fourth appearance someday. I yeah. really appreciate your time and your... Um, you know, your, your years of engaging with this show at this point, it really means a lot. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs>